0: We are going to start right now, and we have an uh, a additional participant, uh, Mr. Bennett, coming to us from the uh, United States Senate Recording Studio, so he will be putting you on a national park. but he is also part of the uh, press conference by way of He is the Media. Uh, Mr. Bennett, are you, are you there, and can you
1: hear us?
2: I can hear you well. Yes, I'm here.
1: All right. You can announce your podcast again.
2: The name of the podcast is A Broad Range of Intelligent People. We are premiering it on Juneteenth, and what better time of week and uh, time of year to uh, feature the holiday uh, than the day that it became a holiday?
0: And, of course, you're featuring intelligent people, if you will, from peace and peace. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but it was uh, just about 24 hours ago uh, when uh, I had to get a sense of whether or not this was real. This has been a long journey. This is where the generations have to talk to each other. We wanted to be able to reach uh, as many today on this day so that even the uniqueness of our unity to be reflected in this day, in this historic legislation, journey, both, and finally a bill. No one would imagine the buzz of social media <laughs> is how did it happen? The buzz of social media is the mountain of deaf ears and overwhelming... Reference. And then there's the generational question. what about social justice and racial equity? I want to come here to Emancipation Farm for a variety of voices to be able to emphasize that none of us are unmindful of social justice and racial equity. Economically, you fight it every day. We must have a Juneteenth holiday. For 12 years, I've been commemorating Juneteenth, filing the bill. Then, of course, we lifted it up as we began to file the national holiday bill. Senate this year asked that they could take my bill to the Senate. Joined by Senator Cornyn and the my by leading it in, in the House. The obstructionists, the no vote that had knocked us down last year indicated their intent to do so this year. Not able to overcome the miraculous gathering together of the extra votes that we needed that the Senate did a procedure that we celebrate called unanimous consent. A dangerous procedure because one person stand up and say not now. On um, late Tuesday evening, that bill came out on unanimous consent of the Senate That evening, I began to work late into the evening of what we could do. We had one day. We had one day. The best that I thought we could do is that we could get a debate and a vote next week. But as I spoke early in the morning Wednesday. We think we can do a rule. We think we can do the rule debate. We think we can then go to the floor, and then we can have a vote. But we can't do it, Congresswoman, because the papers have not come to the yeah. Senate. Good news yeah. the call mm-hmm. Senator Cornyn's office for them to run those papers over uh, to the House, letting us do a rule at 12.15, 12.15 on Wednesday day, then the debate at 2 p.m., and a very close vote on the rule, because the tradition is that you vote against the rule if you're in the opposing party. We barely made the move. Most people don't look back on that. They said they were going to vote against the rule, but we made it. And of course, at five five thirty, they were kind enough to invite me to be the speaker for ten to preside over that debate. Um, we were counting them. I really thought I was having a different experience. And that number kept going up, kept going up, kept going up. To four hundred and fifteen verses 14 that we thought was going to be the other way around, and they voted for Juneteenth. This is American politics. This is American politics. So let me just give you these words as I yield. Juneteenth has made made real the last person living under the system of shadow slavery of human bondage. The prophetic words of President Abraham Lincoln delivered November 19, 1863 at Gettysburg, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom and the government of the people, by the people, for the people, do not perish from here. It should give us great inspiration, no matter what color we are, that this day reflects that when you give freedom, you do not perish. And it might be, as it is written in Ecclesiastes 3.1, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven.
2: That was Congresswoman Sheila Jackson-Lee from Texas at a press conference in Houston. Representative Jackson Lee has been a leader of the
3: legislation, turning Juneteenth into a federal holiday this week. Welcome to the inaugural episode of A Broad Range of Intelligent People. I'm a co-host of the show.
4: I'm also a co-host of the show, and
3: we're so glad you could join us today. Today's episode, for a variety of reasons, is going to deviate a little bit from our ideal format. Typically, we intend to have a bit more humor and entertainment, But as we are dealing with a number of very serious topics, we want to make sure we are paying due reverence to the matters at hand.
4: We're joined here today by our close friend and colleague, Shep Bennett, who we hope will be a regular contributor of the show, and who has been doing most of the heavy lifting this week in assembling an impressive lineup of guests for you. Shep can tell you a little bit more about what we have in store.
2: Surely. A few weeks back, we started to notice that a number of significant anniversaries are all converging at the same time. In fact, there are four very significant commemorations, three traumatic and one celebratory, that take place within one month. The one-year anniversary of George Floyd's murder on May 25th, the centennial of the Tulsa massacre May 30th and June 1st, the five-year anniversary of the Pulse massacre on June 12th, and finally Juneteenth.
3: We want to take a closer look at this specific, very unique time in our history and scratch the surface of the greater questions around where we are as a nation in terms of racial reckoning and equity.
4: We were able to have one-on-one discussions with Brandon Wolf, a Pulse survivor, and Bobby Eaton, a descendant of a Tulsa massacre survivor. Both are activists and are working towards greater racial awareness. I also had a little time to
2: interview Congresswoman Jackson Lee individually, and here's what she had to say with me. All right, uh, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee from Texas's 18th District. Uh, this week, Juneteenth was made a federal holiday, the 11th federal holiday, the first, in my knowledge, that the holiday is taking place the week that it was declared a holiday. Uh, how important is that for America?
0: It was enormously important for the fact that the original sin, of stain on America's history, uh, filled with uh, the blood and tears of slaves that were brutalized and long-suffering, that when in years and centuries past, it was never discussed. And now for it to have a national federal holiday uh, that will allow everyone to acknowledge the past and to embrace today and tomorrow, and to do so by giving all of America a holiday, all of America the ability to be able to recognize that period that should be acknowledged because it was long-suffering, and the descendants of those individuals still are today impacted by slavery. So it was exciting. It was special, and the fact that it was multicultural—it was colleagues that are Republicans and Democrats. Uh, it was enormous.
2: You, know, you had broad support in the Senate and the White House too. The time was just right for this. It's in a time where there's strife between the two houses. Uh, it seemed to be a very an easy decision to make for everybody.
0: I used the words earlier in the day when I was standing with Senator Cornyn uh, and uh, standing with the. Uh, Members of the Senate, Senator Markey and myself, in front of the Senate, talking about the Senate passage, I said, racial divide for this day has fallen from the sky and crushed to the earth, and we have unity. I think it was a time when people could unabashedly, without fear, uh, go and vote for, uh, if you will, an idea long incoming, long needed. Acknowledge your past. Our president said a nation is great when it can knowledge its past and still remain a nation. And that is what I think happened. We created a holiday. Holiday provides for storytelling. Uh, It provides for knowing your history. And we provided that opportunity with the passage and the quick signing by the President of the United States and the President of Vice President Kamala Harris and, of course, the sponsors, Jill Jackson Lee, Senator Markey and my colleague Senator John Cornyn, and Opal Lee, Opal Lee, 94 years old, that brought 1.6 million petitions to the United States uh, Congress, which I received about two years ago. So this was a very important day for Texas, but it was an important day for the nation. And, again, important day for
5: freedom.
2: Comes in the same month as an anniversary for Texas's neighbor, Oklahoma, acknowledges what happened in Tulsa 100 years ago. Uh, how important is this holiday in connection to what did happen in Tulsa?
1: Well, Tulsa's only telling the story of the
0: brutality of the life of black people in America. Uh, I spent four days in Tulsa, keynoting and being part of the African Legacy Project, uh, and I saw the pain, and I saw the resilience, and I saw the desire for freedom again a hundred years since the Tulsa Massacre, the Greenwood Massacre, uh, and the need for another one of our initiatives, HR40, the commission of study and develop preparation proposals. I think with the voting on the Juneteenth uh, National Independence Day holiday, I think it was an icebreaker. That's an interesting thing to say because it's very hot. give people the opportunity to vote on matters dealing with race, but recognizing that race is as much of America as anything else, and to be able to visit with your constituents. Uh, by suggesting uh, that you voted uh, so that there might be uh, opportunities, uh, if you will, uh, to teach about that history in a non-threatening, educational way. Really, education helps heal. Storytelling helps heal. We want to heal America. We want to repair America. Um, And we want America to know that its greatness is in its people, and the ability for it to make a difference. So um, that's what I think is so special about this holiday. You know, holidays bring people together, bring families out. It brings out good cooking. It brings out fellowship. It brings out neighbors having enjoying stuff. And it brings out this big, big events.
2: This bill moves through Congress so quickly. Do you think this brings hope for the possibility of a quick passage of H.R. 40 or the George Ford, uh, Floyd Policing Act or other things where you're talking about racial healing in America?
0: I don't want to presuppose. Obviously, the George Floyd uh, Justice and Policing Act has been passed in the House of Representatives since March. Uh, We've been negotiating and engaging and waiting and hoping. Uh, We have a terrible structure in the Senate. Uh, Senator Schumer is working very hard as a majority leader, but uh, Senator McConnell is only about no. He's not about uh, any other uh, word but no. And it is unfortunate uh, that his desire is only to obstruct America, not to help America. So um,
5: we, we hope to see good news.
2: What kind of traditions do you want to see come out of this holiday that still reminds people of what the holiday is really all about, more than just sales and cookouts?
5: <laughs>
0: well, you know, you really are an American holiday when you've got sales and cookouts. You know, you're really... Uh, you're, uh, really making a difference uh, in people's uh, understanding when you see the Juneteenth sales and the Juneteenth car sales. And I I don't say that with disrespect, but I think Juneteenth has the ability to be somber, uh, to have people seek out hollow ground, uh, to seek historic sites in America, uh, which have heretofore been quiet. I think maybe some people understand what Gettysburg was all about. Some people may understand that Uh, Abraham Lincoln did have a sense of wanting to keep the Union together, but he had words about how horrible slavery was. He did acknowledge that. He acknowledged that they needed to be compensated. Uh, It's sad that he lost his life, uh, but he understood how divisive slavery was. So maybe people will take a historical charity. Uh, Maybe people will seek to understand what slave life was like and then fully be able to appreciate uh, the idea that um, the descendants of enslaved Africans need to be repaired. That the commission to study slavery, uh, and of course to uh, to ensure uh, that they repair, or reparations, proposed be done, it is not uh, an out of the usual or uh, unique circumstance. It's not at all. Uh, and and so I hope that will happen. As it relates to timing on voting rights. Uh, the Jewish Floyd Justice and Policing Act um, and uh, the Commission to Study uh, Slavery and H.R. 40, I hope they will come in time. I hope they will propel uh, or be propelled by this uh, holiday just like after the Emancipation Proclamation in 1865 we propelled the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. The 13th Amendment to end slavery came in December of 1865 because we knew Congress knew that it had to be more pronounced in order for uh, it to be adhered to because slavery was still not really completely gone. So I think uh, what we will see is uh, a evolving, a positive evolving and while we will be telling stories and telling history and going to historic places we'll use Juneteenth as that week we'll also be able to fellowship and have fun celebrate big concerts and big events or big social justice events or events to help improve the quality of life for people. That's the kind of thing that we'll see
2: happening. You've been very busy this 117th Congress and it's not over yet. What's next for you? Oh, I have a lot of work to do. I chair the subcommittee
0: on crime, terrorism, homeland security dealing with domestic terrorism and like dealing with the over-incarceration of people. We'll be writing and introducing major Sentencing reduction legislation, uh, I'll be part of the writing of the Voting Rights Act reauthorization uh, as well. I'm um, here to pass uh, H.R. 40. That is uh, my bill. Uh, there's a Supreme Court decision coming out that I may have to correct uh, with legislation if it undermines a part of the Voting Rights Act uh, that had not been undermined. And then I'm excited about writing a complete rewrite of the way we treat juveniles in America and rewriting the juvenile justice system, hope to get that passed. So we're very, very busy, I'm just humbled and honored uh, to have been able to carry the team Bill and for the Senate to take the bill up and for, Jeff, for me to have the partners that I had in Senator in Markey, Senator corner, and many, many others who, in fact, were able to strategically get it passed in the Senate and to the House. Uh, I always will acknowledge that this was a team effort. Uh, and, but it is also important so that the sponsors of the bills uh, are recognized for the work that they have done. But so this is a team, and this will be America's bill. It will not be known as anyone's bill. It will be America's bill. And I'm glad to be able to be part of that. And if it's known as anyone's bill, it will be known as 94-year-old Opal Lee, And in Texas, we'll recognize certainly a hardworking state representative out and this is at the state holiday. Uh, done many, many
2: years ago. Congresswoman Jackson Lee, thank you so much for joining us on a broad range of intelligent people.
4: Five years ago this month, on June 12, 2016, a horrific tragedy occurred at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando when a gunman swearing allegiance to the terrorist group ISIS killed 49 people and injured an additional 53. The killings and suffering played out over a three-hour period. ...before police finally stormed the club and killed the gunman. It was the deadliest terrorist attack in the U.S. since September 11, 2001... ...and it's the deadliest single incident against LGBTQ people in this country's history. Pulse, a popular gay nightclub, was holding Latin night. Most of those killed were Latino. Most were of the LGBTQ community, though straight allies were also victims... Speaking now with Brandon Wolf of Equality Florida is Shep Bennett.
2: You and I were just talking. We have a couple of anniversaries. One is past, one is coming up. The anniversary of Massacre at Pulse was this past weekend and the anniversary or the celebration of Juneteenth is this coming weekend. Kind of an odd convergence uh, right now in our time because things seem to be moving uh, in some ways in the right direction and in some ways uh, two steps back. Uh, what do you think about that? What do you think about uh, where we are right now in America as we recognize the pain that Americans are going through? Yeah.
5: You know, something my boss says frequently to me is that it is at the moment of greatest tension or the point of greatest tension that we find the greatest opportunity for growth. I think we're in that place as a country. Um, things are very challenging right now. Things are extremely polarized and divided. Um, tensions are incredibly high, but at the same time, we have made progress as a society. Progress that it's really important to um, stop and digest and celebrate. Um, you know, it, it's not lost on me that the anniversary of the shooting at Pulse Polk- also Polk- comes.
2: This is also the 100th anniversary of the massacre that took place in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in the neighborhood of Greenwood, what they call Black Wall Street. And for a very long time, it was uh, covered up and forgotten about. (laughs) Tulsa, Oklahoma, had what was considered Black Wall Street, which was a very financially successful district of black-owned businesses of various types. And May 31st and the 1st of June in 1921, uh... White neighbors went in and basically destroyed the neighborhood. They dropped turpentine bombs from airplanes on the neighborhood on people running down the street. Blew up buildings and killed about 300 people. And uh, it made national news uh, that weekend. And then it was kind of brushed under the rug. Three people uh, were identified as the perpetrators. Uh, They went to trial very soon and were exonerated for what happened. And so it was forgotten about. And so that part of town kind of rebuilt itself over time. Gentrification kind of uh, diluted what it was. There are about three to four buildings left on what was Black Wall Street that acknowledged what used to be a very thriving financial district. But for years, nobody talked about the, uh, the killings um, until the HBO series Watchmen and then the HBO series uh, Lovecraft Country uh, both talked about it. And people who viewed it were blown away because they thought they were making this up, but they weren't. And so... Uh, You know, that's 100 years ago. There's finally acknowledgement of it. Do you see any similarities in the the anniversaries and the acknowledgment of the anniversaries of Pulse and Greenwood, uh, Tulsa?
6: Well, I want to be careful not to draw lines between events or marginalized communities because marginalized communities go through, you know, different things um, and have gone through different things throughout history. Um, But I will say what, what I see as maybe a a similarity is what we can take away from an anniversary like this um when the shooting at pulse happened one of the things that struck me and sat with me in a really bad way was the way in which people's identities were erased in the aftermath and the systemic obstacles to resources were not being talked about so We were talking about Pulse, we were talking about, um, you know, domestic terrorism, we were talking about a presidential election cycle, but I wasn't hearing people talk about the lines of gay men wrapped around the building trying to donate blood but being denied because that's illegal in this country. I wasn't hearing people talk about the fact that there were undocumented family members of victims who were... You know, worried about coming forward to get the care that they needed because the barriers to that care were controlled by the FBI and they were concerned about being, you know, discovered and deported. Um, I wasn't hearing people talk about how disproportionately disadvantaged uh, people in the transgender community are, and very specifically, black trans women are from accessing resources. I wasn't seeing people elevate the stories of black trans women. There were black trans women present. At Pulse, Uh, among the survivor community, are Black trans women, and I didn't see their voices being elevated in the same way that others that other peoples were. So, the the similarities I see between what you just talked about in Tulsa and this you know moment of remembrance in Orlando is that we have more work to do. These anniversaries are reminders that. We have not even begun to scratch the surface on what equity looks like in this country. We have for a long time erased the stories of the people who need to be elevated and amplified the most. We have been reluctant to have conversations about the roles that we all play in how violence and oppression show up in society. And I'm hopeful that these anniversaries are a reminder that we have that work left to do and a moment for us to recommit to doing that work together.
2: I want to make two points here, B, but I don't know what to do with them. Uh, My first one is that, you know, we're now, we're in certainly a different media climate than we were a century ago. I'm just hoping that it won't take a hundred years to, uh, I'm hoping that the memory pulse doesn't fade away somewhere in the next hundred years and and certainly crop up on June 12th, you know, in uh, 2116.
6: I'm going to work really hard to make sure that doesn't happen.
2: Right on. And the other thing is uh, what you just said about uh, the lack of access uh, for trans women. Uh, It just came out, a report just came out that the most uh, heavily affected uh, victims of COVID or the least served victims of COVID, same situation, same circumstance. Um, I'm not going to ask you to postulate why that may be, uh, but of all the efforts that people were making to make sure that people uh, either didn't catch it or had access to vaccinations and such, Still, we're looking at a population that seems to be overlooked. And uh, I don't know what that is. That's so ingrained in in, in society that uh, no one thinks to reach out.
6: Yeah. and, And, you know, I guess I would challenge that because on an individual level, there are efforts underway, right, to reach out to underserved communities in our country. Um, one by one in our communities, where there are people doing incredible work. Uh, I know here in Central Florida, there are organizations doing incredible work. But it is a testament to the fact that our systems and structures are fundamentally flawed and are working as designed a long time ago. Um, the, you know, one thing that's frustrating me right now in, in the conversation around critical race theory and Uh, Sort of the way that race is being used as a lightning rod by the far right to stir up outrage is That there's this um, There's the almost an assertion that when black people were emancipated That racism disappeared or evaporated into the ether and suddenly our entire country was unified But that's fundamentally false Uh, that is not the way the country has operated the country has struggled with how to grapple with the original sin of slavery um, for centuries, and we haven't yet solved for a lot of those problems. So, you know, when you have conversations about homeownership, when you have conversations about healthcare access, when you have conversations about stigma and, you know, believing someone when they say they're sick versus, you know, just assuming that they're being dramatic, right? When you talk about all of the ways that people interact with systems and structures in our country, they are born from a place that did not view people that were marginalized as the same as everyone else for much of its history. So it's very hard for me to, how do I articulate this? It's, it's very hard for me to be engaged in this conversation right now around critical race theory and, and race in general in our country, because it doesn't feel like we're talking about the same history. Uh, it feels like there's a fundamental disconnect for people, as if to say what happened even just 40 or 50 years ago is not relevant to what's happening today um, is dangerous. I, I think we run the risk of forgetting our history. So when you're talking about the lack of resources, the lack of access... That's built into the systems and structures, and that's part of why I think it's so important that we tell our stories in an authentic way so that when people remember Pulse, so that when we talk about what happened at Pulse in the way that we talk about what has happened throughout history, violence against marginalized people, we continue to center this idea that there is, that there are obstacles to the kind of resources we need to truly heal.
2: So do you think the conditions of racism and bigotry in America are getting better or worse?
6: I think, that well, that's a really big question. Mm-hmm. I think we are having more honest conversations than we have had in the past, which is a really important first step. I think we, thanks in part to social media, are able to see the very real impacts of bigotry and hatred uh, in real time and not filtered through somebody else's lens. Um, But we have a lot of work to do. The systems and structures that oppress people have not fundamentally changed over the last 50 or 60 years, right? We've made incredible progress. We've passed good legislation, but we still have the same systems and structures in place that sort of hold up the power structure as it is today. Um, you know, we we haven't addressed the fact that we criminalize poverty in this country. Um, we haven't addressed the fact that we lean on a carceral system. We just assume that the more people we lock up, the safer our society will be, despite the fact that data doesn't actually support that. Um, you know, we we haven't addressed the way that marginalized people and specifically black people are disenfranchised from exercising their right to vote. Those are fundamental structures of our country that we haven't fully addressed. Um, One of the things I brought forward during the protests last summer was how baked in our education system is. Why is it that we have an education system that teaches you that Christopher Columbus was a really nice guy and also doesn't teach you about what happened in Tulsa. It doesn't teach you about Black Wall Street. It doesn't teach you about redlining and how that has impacted homeownership rates for the Black community uh, over the years. So all of our systems and structures have to be assessed and improved so that we can tell the whole story of who we are and move everyone forward. Um, I know those are difficult conversations to have. As I mentioned, I think we're having more of them in a more honest light, but the systems and structures that that perpetuate oppression and violence are still there, and we've got a lot of work to do to dismantle them.
2: I kind of, I didn't want to pass over this uh, particular issue, but um, uh, we, you, you're making strong effort to make sure that the memory of Pulse doesn't fade from our collective memory.
6: Yeah. Well, that's right. Um because it's it's so important that when we talk about pulse and when we talk about violence generally that we don't reduce people to storylines that we don't reduce people to, to data points on a graph somewhere my best friends who were killed that night are not data points they're not statistics they're Their deaths are not just moments to memorialize once a year. They had rich, beautiful lives before they were stolen. And if we're going to get serious about uprooting hatred and bigotry and putting a stop to the epidemic of gun violence in our country, then we have to tell the beautiful, rich stories of the people who are being stolen from us. We cannot allow ourselves to become numb to the numbers. We can't allow our friends, our family members, our neighbors, to be just names on a concrete wall somewhere. We have to continue to do the hard work of sharing their beautiful stories with the world so we can stay rooted in our collective humanity. Um, That's what drives me every single day. I tell people all the time, I don't think I'm the protagonist in my own story. I think my best friends have that distinction. And I'm just here to make sure that people don't forget how they lived while they're talking about how they died.
2: Beautifully stated. Um, Without to get further that without trying to sound without sounding weird, I guess, uh, is there a positive takeaway from the tragedy from what happened? Something positive that came out of it? Is there something that makes you hopeful about the future?
6: Yeah, it's hard to call anything positive, um, that came out of pulse, but I, I will say that there are things that give me hope and optimism. Uh, one of them is the incredible power that young people have found um, to change the world. I'm perpetually inspired by young leaders, young activists, young people running for office. Um, it gives me hope that the future doesn't have to look like this. These conversations that we're having about people being disenfranchised and you know systemically blocked from accessing resources, young people are having those hard conversations. I I was just trying to figure out which restaurant to go to to walk to for lunch when I was in high school. I wasn't thinking about how to tackle, you know, systemic racism in our education system. But young people are doing that right now. Um, They're having tough conversations. They're mobilizing. They're organizing. That gives me a lot of hope. It's part of the reason that the best part of my year is when we award our scholarships at the Drew Project because I get to read the stories that, that these young people share of how they're already impacting their communities. And as I mentioned earlier, the other thing that gives me hope and optimism is that I think Orlando, in some ways, has found the answer to this hate and bigotry, found the antidote. Um, we were staring down the barrel of incredible evil, incredible hatred, And there's the very real possibility that that could have torn us apart. Think about other moments in this country where, you know, we've stared down evil and hatred and we've allowed it to be weaponized and turned into, you know, uh, nationalism or, you know, other dangerous Islamophobia. And there was a very real danger that that would happen here as well. Um, But instead, we made the conscious decision as a community that we would refuse to allow hatred to tear us apart. We would would refuse for the storyline to be LGBTQ versus whoever, the faith community, the Muslim community, and instead we would write our own future and it would be one where we are all one community. So that has given me a lot of hope and optimism as well, that our response to hatred and violence, one of community, one of unity, um, one of acceptance and belonging that that is a blueprint for how the rest of the country and the world can tackle hatred generally,
2: man, I wish I was as cool as you when i was thirty two
6: <laughs> i don't know about cool I'm just wishing I was as cool as some of these young people at age sixteen. I'm like, oh my gosh, tearing it up out there,
2: <laughs> yeah, there is a conversation that seems to marginalize uh and minimize what it is that young people uh do or how they are because there are things that seem to be missing uh, in what the casual observer might notice to be their day-to-day lives. But you you pointed out that they're dealing with a lot of things that are quite stressful and uh, maybe beyond what we usually expect of a uh, person in their uh, teens and tweens and twenties. But they, and they have a lot more to handle (laughs) as they get older, you know? So uh, we shall see, but uh, I do have faith in uh, what's to come.
6: Yeah, I do too. And You know, you said it, there's just so much happening, right? We're in a very tumultuous time in history. Um, You can imagine how difficult it is to be 16, 17 years old. I'm thinking about what it was like to be me as a teenager. I can't imagine what that would have felt like with the added pressures of being present on social media all the time. Oh, and by the way, a -a once-in-a-generation pandemic. Oh, and by the way, a volatile four-year stretch where we flirted with authoritarianism that really hasn't faded very far from from our everyday lives all of those things piled on top of a 16 and 17 year old i can't imagine um, what that would feel like and so i'm i'm incredibly inspired by those who face all of that down and still show up and change the world every day
2: excellent um thank you so much for letting me talk to you for as long as i did today Um, If you're ever in D.C., let us know. My colleagues would love to uh, shake your hand and uh, pat you on the back and give you an attaboy and uh, encourage you to keep up the fight because it's worth it.
6: Thank you. I appreciate it.
2: Can you tell me uh, what happened 100 years ago uh, between May 31st and June 1st in Tulsa uh, of 1921? (laughs) Well.
1: and throughout this world, right down there. Uh, and what ended up happening was there was a black man by the name of a young, young black teen, uh, uh named
5: Dick Rowland. I guess he was about 18, 19 years mm-hmm. old. And uh, he went, he was working at what they called the Drexel Building. And so he had to go to the mm-hmm.
1: black-designated restrooms that they had for blacks back in those days. So he got uh, on the elevator, and the elevator operated. Name of Sarah Page. I guess you. It came about Black Wall Street. So that devastation and also horrific acts that took place down there, still the trauma from it still exists to this day here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, even in 2021, because uh, a lot of the of the businesses that were down there that were burnt. See, now they went back. put it up, and rebuilt it, and due to uh, urban, what I call, they say urban renewal, I call it urban rem- removal, came down there and just, and just kind of took over all of the history and the streets and all of that, and gentrification came in, and they ran a freeway right through uh, Black Wall Street. That's why we only have a little small addition of black businesses down there today. And they did that, and then uh, the gentrification part came for OSU, Utah, for Oklahoma State University. Came down there and built a big old campus down there. They cut off a lot of, uh, you know, they cut off a lot of things down there, and and bought up all that because see Greenwood, it extended from Greenwood and Archer all the way down to Pine Street. You had economic development of black businesses. Black people had it going on. They were just prosperous. They dressed nice. They, the women had their hair done, and they dressed real fine. And they respected each other. Men opened doors for females, and, and you know that kind of thing. Like that, the young respected the elders, and uh, it was it was just thriving in the community during a period of time. But that devastation really, really hurt, man. It, can you imagine? Can you imagine a a mother and her two little babies running down the street doing May 31st and white men just gunning them down, shooting them down like they're some animals and just killing them? One story comes to pass is that I heard of a black female who was pregnant. She was pregnant. She was running down the street trying to get, and a white man came up to her and said, nigger. Where you think you're going? And she says, I'm trying to get away from here. She was huffing and puffing. He took out his knife and split her belly open, and her baby fell onto the ground, and he took his cowboy boot and bashed the baby in the head. That's how devastating and how bad it was back in those days when that was taking place. Uh, black people weren't even considered human, even to a lot of white people. The city of Tulsa deputized a whole bunch of uh, white citizens to go down and do what they did down there. They deputized them, and and most of them was the Ku Klux Klan. It was Klansmen that they deputized. So that destruction and stuff still lives on today. Tulsa is still a racist city. Right in 2021, it is a racist city look at a community about, they say 400,000 people, and out of 400,000 people, you got 65,000 black people. And out of 65,000 black people, they say you got maybe like 33,000 of them who live in the black community. And everybody else, all the rest of those out of that 65, they're spread throughout, throughout Tulsa. We struggle here in our communities for economic development. We were watching gentrification come into our black communities and they're opening up all sorts of uh, uh, fast food restaurants and stuff like that. We just recently, just recently, thanks to uh, Vanessa Hall Harper in Rose Washington, got a uh, grocery store in our community. We were a food desert here for years. So uh, Tulsa has not been just uh, by African Americans. No one was ever charged for those crimes, for that crime. No one, all these years, 100 years, nobody's ever been charged. And I think that the city of Tulsa is is, is unjust, unjust in their vision of Black Wall Street and what it encountered. No reparations have ever been made. Not even to the three survivors who are still who are still living today. They, even though they know they've lost a lot of their family members, but Tulsa hasn't financially uh, recognized them and made it where their children and, and uh, their their children can have a prosperous, a uh, decent life. You know, and it's been so unjust. You know, they're now digging in and certain graves. And they're discovering bodies from that massacre. So far, they say they've discovered 28 bodies already from digging. And they're going to discover some more because not only was those bodies in the cemeteries, those bodies were dumped in the river, on Riverside here, in the Arkansas River. They were dumped in there. They were probably buried down there in Greenwood. You know, up under, they have a big. Uh, they call it One Oak Field Field down there, big baseball down a nice big, big, big place right there. And I know for a fact that there were probably bodies up under those grounds and stuff down there on Greenwood that they covered up and just didn't ever say anything about it. The city of Tulsa needs to be charged for the devastation that they did to Black Wall Street. Reparations need to be made. There's some lawsuits going on right now, you know, but they never, 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 never uh, took that as in consideration. I've heard the mayors and people say, well, I can see maybe doing reparations when it comes to a monument or a building or so-and-so. Man, people, black people need finances. They need money. And the city of Tulsa got money. And they could be helping economic development, investing some of that money into the black community. They could do that. But until they do that, we're still struggling. We're still going through everyday traumas from that massacre. I see it all the time. I own a radio station here in Tulsa, KBOB 89.9 FM, and I have about 12 shows on that radio station. And 35 people come through those doors every day talking about this economic wealth and the health and things of this nature right here. That's what I do to give back. We have children's programs that we have young people in there. they got a radio station from high school and stuff like that as well. So we try to do stuff to give consciousness to our people to become aware to some of the things that we need to do. But, uh, city of Tulsa, hey, they haven't been, been right since 100 years ago.
2: Why did you not hear about this whole thing growing up?
1: Growing up, this, that massacre was never talked about. A lot of us here in this community of Tulsa found out about it when we got grown. And the reason it wasn't talked about is because some of the elders didn't want it to reoccur. My grandfather, Joe Eaton, had a barbershop. That barbershop was over there, and I was a young kid, but I understand that uh, they was talking about it in the barbershop, but if a stranger came in there, they didn't talk about it. They stopped it right there, Stop talking. Did Why? It? I don't know, you know, but it just wasn't taught in the schools, in the school systems. They're still fighting for it not to be taught in the schools down here in Oklahoma you know, the governor and all of that, the Republican Party, because Oklahoma is probably one of the most red states in the Union.
2: And your grandfather was a survivor, was is that
1: right? Yes, my grandfather was a survivor, man. He had a shoe shine stand down there. He had a real gold, he had a gold plate, plated watch-like that he kept in his pocket. Everybody knew about it, Joey. And he cut hair down there in the barbershops down there, you know, uh, as well. You know, and he was an entrepreneur all his life. He never worked for no one else but himself. And I guess a lot of that has rubbed off on me and my family throughout the years because we're a bunch of entrepreneurs as well.
2: That's beautiful. Love to hear that. you think there's been enough national attention or local attention to try to influence the city of Tulsa to do something about it?
1: Well, I put it like this. Now... The world knows about Black Wall Street. Everybody knows about it, who never heard of it before, and it's been national and global attention focused on. So everybody knows about it. But until there are investments, you know, back into the communities of Black Wall Street, then it's just all talk. It's all talk like it's always been. It's talk, talk, talk. Somebody has to be responsible for what, what took place down there. And I don't think the city of Tulsa wants to take on that uh,
2: responsibility. Even with the gentrification and changes, if uh, if Tulsa does do the right thing, do you think Black St- Wall Street would ever come back the way it was?
1: I would love to see Black Wall Street come back and people get off of some of that property that they took away from gentrification and modify, at least modify it over here, he can uh, embrace black economic development and businesses down there. You know, I would I would, I would I would love to see that happen. But, I mean, hey, you didn't bought some property down there. You're not really thinking about trying to, uh, you know, enable a situation to where it represents what it really, really is down there. So whites have a tendency to not want to change what they own. It came down there and
2: bought up a lot. Uh, tell us a little bit more about Juice Radio. I want to talk to you about the youth uh, in just a minute. but uh, you know.
1: <clears throat> Juice Radio Show. Oh, okay. Juice Radio Show is a show I created for young people. The Juice Radio Show. They come from various different high schools and parts of college and stuff like that. And they come in the radio station every Thursday at 6 p.m., and they broadcast and do radio their way. They're not influenced by adults or anything. They talk about issues that young people talk about. And uh, we have several different ways to access the Juice Radio Show. You can get them on uh, KBOB 89.9 Facebook Live. We have a Facebook Live play page where you can see them and hear them and all of the shows that are over here. And uh, you can go to our website website which is kbob899.com. I repeat, kbob899.com, where you can access everything. And uh, we have a good time with the youth. I mean, we took them to Atlanta. You know, we, we stopped at the Lorraine Hotel in Memphis and took them on tours. I took about 15 of them. And we took them down there, and then we went to Atlanta, stayed in an Airbnb, you know, went to CNN. Uh, they gave us the goods tour of CNN, not just a regular tour, the Guts tour of CNN, they gave it to us. Uh, and we went to Tyler Perry Studios. We went to Radio 1 where when Ricky Smiley was down there. And we just did a, a lot of things. And we try to do things with our youth to encourage them that, hey, it's a world out here. And uh, black journalists are very few. And we're trying to get more black j- young journalists out there.
2: What gives you hope for today? What gives you hope that things may change from the way they were a hundred years ago? They have changed some, but you know, uh, there's f- further to go, as you said.
1: Well, a change comes when when our people are knowledgeable who they are. How can you go forward if you don't know where you come from? So, if we got to educate our people, our young and our babies. to to let them know who they are so they can have a sense of pride of who they really, really are. And once they understand who they are and understand their history and their heritage, and uh, even not just the babies and the kids, but some adults need to learn, too. They need to learn that so we can have that hope for the future. Another thing is when what so-called good white people who who call themselves Good white people who know of this black history and know of this this uh, wrongdoing here uh, throughout our United States to start charging up bad white people and educating them and start fighting against the negativity of racism. See, that's why things have happened. I mean, I, I, I see changes taking place a little bit, slowly but surely. Joe Biden's been in office about six months. And I've seen some changes kind of starting to go in that direction. Just just now, they they made Juneteenth a, a holiday. You know what I mean? Uh, so there's a lot of things that uh, he came to Tulsa for for the uh, uh, centennial and spoke. So I can see some racial changes start to take place. Things start to take to take place, but white people who are the majority have got to understand we are human and we built this country. We built, blacks built this country. The White House, the Capitol building, everything were built on the backs of black people. And they must recognize that and give that credit to where credit is due. We built this country. So until they can actually start seeing it and understand it because you look at this country. United States of America. Hey, there are only 13% black people. That's it. 13% black in this United States of America. That's a very small Hispanics have surpassed us, and they're at 17% of the United States. You know, so they surpassed. They're multiplying. Oh, they're going, they're going in hard. You know what I mean? They're multiplying, you know, because they understand the family unit. That's the Hispanics really understand that family unit and that family culture and sticking together with each other and working hard. They'll do the jobs that a lot of African Americans, uh, young African Americans, don't want to do anymore. Like we used to do, you know. So they'll do those jobs, you know. And uh, we got to get back to loving one another, black men and black women. Stop this divide. Stop this hating stop this talking about each other, see what areas we can help each other in rather than hurt each other. Because that's what's going on right now. A lot of that's going on right now due to the fact that the male image has been taken a lot out of the household, and you got a lot of single mothers who have children and raising them alone. And my thing to that is, you know what I mean, meet a man who's got some integrity, and and some respect for himself. You know, that he's not going to lay down with a woman, have a child, and then just disappear. So you got to, those are bad choices. You know, bad choices. Women and women who are raising, you know, boys by themselves and girls who are wrong by themselves. I'm not saying they can't do it, but it takes a man to raise a man. And that's what it takes. You know, so uh, when we get back as a people, We can get conscious, we can get this education, we can get this knowledge, and we can become one like we used to do. You know, uh, we, we, our grandparents and uh, parents suffered more back in the day as far as education is concerned and things of that nature right there but they were respectful. I mean, your grandmother and your grandfather primarily were married and were together, you know, back in the day, and they had that. But now you don't have a lot of that going on right now because you got to, it's a little bit more easier for black people to do stuff. What ends up happening is black people sometimes, when they go off to college, go off to school, and they get these big, degree, big degrees and all of this stuff, they say, this is something I did. I worked hard to get my PhD, uh, my master's. I worked hard to get that. Failing to realize the only way, the only reason you were able to even get a degree is because you standing on the shoulders of blacks who came before you. If it wasn't for them, you wouldn't have no degree. So you you are you, you should be obligated obligated that you got that degree and that master's to give back. To your community and teach JoJo and Pookie Niam how to go forward, because if you don't, you're doing yourself an and So it's so much that we get those degrees, and so we start making these uh, uh, high-profile pro- jobs and things of that nature, and we move over in the white naked community and get up a big old house and two-car, three-car garage, stand next door to Mister Gilmore. And now we feel like we've arrived, you know. Because when blacks get two dollars past bus bus fare, they feel like they didn't arrive. And the, and the truth of the matter is, hey, to some people, you're just another n-word. And you still there. you still that, you know. Hey, we got we got we we got we got, a, we, got a, we got a nigger moving into our community, and that's what it is, you know, and. That's the reality of life. I mean, I'm not just making stuff up. I'm just telling the truth because I believe in telling the truth. Because, you know, old folks used to always say the truth will set you free. And I really believe that. And I believe that right to this day. I believe it right to this day in the struggle of life for African-American people.
2: What encouraged you to start KBOB?
1: Well, what encouraged me is uh, I moved back to Tulsa. You know, my mother took sick and my dad was here and they were aging. I lost my mother, uh, the love of my life back in 2018. So I moved back here. And uh, upon moving back here, we have a family house right here. You know, and we've always kept it electric on, water, gas, fully furnished. Uh, grandma's furniture and some of that stuff is still in here and we love the way it is and it's traditionally the family house Eaton family house and next door adjacent to this house is a duplex building in which and all of this my grandfather Joe Eaton and Louise Eaton they built this place and what was so so nothing was being occupied it was dormant and you could hear crickets around here, around this place. Nothing was taking place. The only time was being used when somebody come from out of town or something like that, or my dad come in here and just check on it or something from time to time. And that's all that was going on. So I came back to town. I moved into the house. Uh, the building next door, which housed, is a duplex, which housed the Eaton barbershop. Now, my grandfather had a barbershop. Joe Eaton, my dad, Bobby Eaton Sr. cut in that barbershop, Jerry Eaton, my uncle cut in that barbershop, it was Joe Eaton and sons in that barbershop, so the community would uh, come into that barbershop, get the haircuts. a lot of black, iconic men from Black Tulsa, North Tulsa, would come in that barbershop, and they'd be chopping it up, talking that talk, and eventually, it became like the hub of... of uh, the Civil Rights Movement for North Tulsa. Everybody knew that you go in that barbershop, boy, they're going to give it to you on some black history and some stuff during a period of time when restaurants, white restaurants, wouldn't really allow in blacks to even come in the restaurant and eat. So they started protesting uh, those white restaurants, you know, protesting. So my dad, Bobby Eaton Sr., he was the first African-American, to get arrested and go to jail for protesting. You know, so uh, that duplex was my grandfather's. On the other side of the duplex was empty. If it were empty and you were a family member, you could go ask Grandpa, Grandpa, uh, can I open up this over there or open up that over there? And if he agreed to it, he would say yes because that side where the radio station is set up now was a boutique shop, it's been a photography studio, it's been my father's campaign headquarters, it's been a several business, different businesses next door. Grandpa would allow you to go over there and open up your business and you know you could have some success or failure or whatever it be and if it was you know that was his way of uh, giving back to his family members. You know, entrepreneurship because when he was ran off of Uh, Black Wall Street doing the centennial They pushed everybody further north And he he came over here And built this house right here And he expanded on this house He did all the plumbing on this house He did everything He built that building over there He was a builder A very iconic man One of the most iconic men I've ever known in my life Joe Eaton You know And uh, Joseph Eaton You know and he pushed that entrepreneurship down throughout his
2: family. You would recommend to anybody to try to own their own, to try to be an entrepreneur on their own, right?
1: Oh, any day of the week. If you, Especially if you're African-American. American, you know, Hey, give it a shot. Try it. What do you have to lose? There are a lot of people that are African-Americans sitting in their homes right now as we speak that are sitting in that house with great ideas and things like that, but just don't want to try to implement that to the people. They got it in their head because we are the most creative people on the planet. We are more creative than any other race of people. And entrepreneurship is important in our communities. So if there's some vacant land out there sitting and you can afford to purchase it, Buy it and build something on it. Or if there's some empty space up in the strip center, you know what I mean, and you want to open up your business, inquire about it. Go and go and try to do it. Hey, if you don't fail, you can't win. You can't win unless you fail. Michael Jordan didn't didn't win every basketball game he played. Muhammad Ali didn't didn't win every boxing match that he did. You know. You got to lose some to
2: win some. As a musician, you got to travel the world and see the world. Did you bring any of that sensibility back uh, when you came back to Tulsa and you know tried to make some changes there?
1: Well, you know, coming from Tulsa, Oklahoma, I left Tulsa at a very early age. You know, in my early twenties, and me and Charlie Wilson of the Gap Band, and all of us, we a group of us left from Tulsa and went out to California, L.A., Hollywood pursuing our dreams, you know, in music. I mean, we were so, because we grew up here in Tulsa, and then when we were in high school, we were entertaining our uh, teachers and civic workers and people in the community in clubs. You know, we, we were 17, 18 years old up in these clubs playing for uh, all these things. We had a lot of talent, man, back in North Korea, We developed our talent, you know, we just had a lot of it. You know, so when we got out to California, we were recognized. People were, oh, man, them Oklahoma boys, bad boys. You know, we busted up in Hollywood, and and a lot of the musicians that we had known about and heard about and seen on our own records, they weren't no better than we were. You know, we, we just felt like, wow, man, I'm kind of disappointed. I thought he played that guitar better than that. I, I thought they did this, but it was Hollywood, Hollywood scene. So when we busted up in there with this talent, it had to be recognized, and we were able to uh, hook up with a lot of legendary people, and, and people were recognizing the talent. Charlie Wilson singing his butt off and playing, and Gap Band, and I was playing with Nat. I joined up with Natalie Cole and played with her, and uh, Bobby Womack, and we-, we all worked a little bit with Ike Turner, you know, Ike and Tina, and just others in the industry, you know, and uh, Natalie took me all over the world. I traveled with her. I did TV, radio, recordings, and everything with Natalie Cole, and uh, that was probably one of the biggest adventures that I've taken in my life. You know, being with her, and uh, she's deceased now. As uh, many of you know, but you know, it was a it was a good relationship during the time that I spent with her.
2: About five years ago, in Orlando, there was a club that got shot up. <clears throat> and it was uh, mostly black and brown youth were up in it, uh, and it was a gay club, and one guy came and shot up, and five it's a five-year five anniversary, not a lot of coverage uh, in the media. Uh, do you see patterns like that replicating, you know, coming from Tulsa, and every time there's a situation depending on who the population is, it gets less and less attention. I mean, is that something that you think is continuing in America, and, and what can be done to yeah, change it?
1: I believe it's continuing, less and less attention to minorities. and Most of the time when Mainstream media wants to report on African American stories. It's always something negative. Uh, somebody shot somebody, trying to kill somebody, a rob somebody, or something like that. That's the mainstream me- media. They portrays that in your local, your local media and stuff like that. I opened up a radio station because I don't want to always talk about the devastation in the black community, but the positive. And uh, the uplifting stories and the good things that people and our people need to hear, you know, that need to hear that never gets reported. Uh, My motto is, and everybody knows, and we got it all on our banners, is we tell our stories our way. And that's what we do. We're not controlled by no mass media or nothing at all. We just say what we say and feel what we feel. And. That's what we do over here, KBOB 89.9 FM. That's what we do. And that's why I opened up that radio station, because when I moved back to Tulsa, we didn't have a lot of black media going on, period. It was like, man, you would go to the store. Hey, Bobby, uh, uh, did you go to the town hall meeting the other other day? What town hall meeting? Bobby, did you go to such and such meeting the other day? Boom. They they are doing this and so and so and so and so. On. I didn't, I was never hearing about the stuff that was going on in the community, and I thought all of a sudden I said, "Man, I gotta open up a radio station." So I opened up this radio station, which started off internet based. And what I did was I said, "Well, I'm gonna start off this internet uh, radio station, and I'm gonna utilize all of my celebrity friends and musicians that." I had an encounter, and I'm, I'm going to start interviewing them, and they could tell this story. So I'd be calling certain people, and, hey, man, uh, Ralph Johnson, Earthwind Fry, hey, man, can I interview you? Hey, Charlie, can I interview you? Hey, uh, Lakeside, Zap, anybody, can I interview y'all? And they say, yeah, man, I'll come on to your radio station, Bobby. so I knew these guys, and I knew these people in the industry for years. And so they would come on, and they would bring their fan clubs, People would come over here to the Bobby Eaton Show at that particular time. And and since the Internet days, which we're still Internet, we've went FM radio. We've got two or three live streams going on, face, uh, YouTube live streams going on. And you can see us, you can hear us, and I've got those 12 shows going on over here. You got any
2: advice for people about how to move on past tragedy?
1: It is hard to move on past tragedy because tragedy will never leave your mindset. It'll always be there. But what you have to do is have some self-esteem and be positive. Be around that positive energy and take that positive energy and try to uh, put it on someone who needs some positive energy really need some if they'll listen to you. You know, because you got people out here, they're not trying to receive any positive energy. You know, Black Wall Street was Black excellence. That's what it was. Black excellence. And I don't say that just to be saying it. It was real. It was Black excellence. You know, it, it didn't get no better. You know, and that's what we need to have today and get out of the selfish attitude it's all about me. Me, 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 me rather than we, 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 we. And see that because you can't build a mountain by yourself. you got to have people to help you build that mountain. You can't do it alone. And that's a lot of African Americans who think they can do stuff all by themselves. If you have to get up every morning and punch a clock and go to Mr. Gilmore every day, and sit it behind a cubicle, or do whatever you're doing on that. You're punching a clock, and you're working to make someone else rich. They pay they pay you a little salary, you know, a few dollars an hour, and you're making them rich when you have the skills to make yourself rich. To implement it towards economic
2: development for black people. Bobby Eaton. That's the bottom line. All right. Founder of KBOB 89.9 FM, musician extraordinaire and advocate for black excellence. We want to thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, okay? Yes, sir. All right. We'll talk soon. Thank you so much. Okay, goodbye. Bye-bye.
4: that's our show for today. Thanks again to Shep and our guests.
3: Tune in next time when we talk with Richard Goldstein about the state of truth in journalism today. These kinds of fabrications have existed for a long time, but with the publications on the right today, it's tied to an insurrectionary fervor that itself is dangerous. Thanks so much for joining us on A Broad Range of Intelligent People.